Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to another episode of Full Prefrontal. My mission is to help people understand that their brain's prefrontal cortex, at its best, acts as as an orchestra conductor, directing actions, guiding emotions, tweaking responses, calibrating decisions in order to create a beautiful, harmonious symphony of well-lived life. But the most critical element of that is attention. And it's such a joy to speak about attention because I grew up in a culture where sitting still, doing nothing, and expecting no change of scene was routine. Uh, I, on top of that, I have spent last 25 years of my career teaching and coaching those minds whose fundamental struggle is in paying attention. Often, they don't seem to understand that that attention is the gateway to information processing. And knowing what to pay attention to is as important as paying attention. And I have seen the beauty in well-cultivated attention and what a gift it can be to, uh, to present somebody with this gift of attention with great care and generosity. I love Susan Sontag, what she says, attention is vitality. It connects you with others. It makes you eager and stay eager. So with great pleasure and joy, I introduce you to esteemed and amazing and incredible guest today, Maggie Jackson. She is an award-winning author and a journalist known for her pioneering writing, exploring social trends, particularly technology's impact on humanity. Her acclaimed book, Distracted, which the second edition just came out in 2018, kickstarted a global conversation on the steep cost of fragmented attention. Winning the prestigious 2020 Dorothy Lee Book Award of Excellence in Technology Criticism, Distracted was compared by FastCompany.com to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring for its uh, prescient critique of technology's excess. Uh, The book helped inspire Google's recent digital well-being initiative, a former Boston Globe contributing columnist, uh, Maggie, uh, Maggie's commentary and articles have appeared in media worldwide, including New York Times, NPR, and the noted design and philosophy journal, The New Philosopher. And I can go on and on with her accolades, but you should listen to her as she will tell us everything we need to know about attention. Welcome, Maggie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words. It's a delight to be with you. Uh, thank you. So I asked this of my um, guests uh, because we talk about uh, prefrontal cortex, executive function, and self-regulation, uh, which really are the uh, key hallmark skills for self-awareness and self-knowledge. So I would love to just know, uh, since you study attention and distractions, when did you, as a young learner, become aware of your attention abilities? And did you have good attention? Uh, were you a distractible kid or did you master your learning because of your attention? Oh, that's such a, those are great questions. And actually no one has ever asked me that before. Yes. So <laughs> that's really interesting. You know, it's funny because I think attention is life. As you were saying in the introduction, attention is, you know, everything. It's, it, 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 it matters so much to life. And yet so many of us aren't really acutely aware of it. And I count myself as one for most of my, of course, my childhood, uh, for my, you know, some part of my adulthood, I wasn't at all aware of attention. Um, I have to say I was probably, I, I think I'm a mix. I'm not really sure. I've actually taken neurological tests and I sort of fit, you know, about middle ground when it comes to, um, certain attentional skills. Um, but I, it's a, it's a skill, I guess, that I've always um, subliminally or unconsciously uh, practiced because I, I value deep listening. I value being present in the moment. I value following a train of thought. And these are some of the skills I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, so I wasn't really explicitly, you know, it, it, I wasn't really 
I didn't know anything about attention until I began to study today's technologies. And I wanted to get a grip on this slippery, slippery animal called, you know, today's technologies. I looked in the history books, I looked at the science, and suddenly, literally in the library one day, as I was just just beginning this book, Distracted, a long time ago, I woke up to the fact that it's all about attention. And uh, so I I think I was reading a book about the art historical concept of being absorbed in something, but it clicked for me that I really needed, if I was going to understand today's technological world, I needed to understand attention. And from there, um, you know, I, I have just fallen into this deep well, I guess, or beautiful sort of endless horizon of learning. You know, your answer takes me to so many places. One thing that I think deeply connects with me is the sounds like you grew up in a culture where these skills were valued and and you kind of have nurtured them, which is such a tender, loving care to give to your attention. I remember when I was a child, this is probably going to sound very strange, but my father used to make us do this exercise, and this is probably going to freak people out, but he would light a, a lamp, which is dia, uh, which is an oil lamp, uh, in a dark room. And we would, I particularly was asked to sit as a way to build strength and to sit in a room still and stare at the, the flame of the lamp. That is something I grew up doing. And, and then I, when I went to college and I asked, like, you know, this is Indian culture, but maybe everybody did that. And no, nobody did that. So I, I just, I think that kind of a simple exercise was so incredibly valuable because it just showed how incredibly incapable you are to pay attention unless you pay attention to it. You know oh, what I mean? Precisely. <laughs> because it is a, I mean, I, I, in some ways I don't like to use the term mental muscle because that's kind of a cliche and it's not doesn't really speak to the wonders of attention one of the foremost attention scientists Mike Posner uh, whose okay. work I wrote about um, he you know compares or or has discovered that attention is um, an organ system it's more akin to your digestion or your circulatory system that conveys its complexity you know there are different parts and there are different aspects of attention. But your point is so correct that it's something that you need to practice. You, you need to, um, you know, develop this skill. And that's another thing I think that's a very, very important starting point for people to understand is that it doesn't come automatically. And I, and I feel very strongly that in a culture where we are able to download so much or to click on this or to, you know, it's not just the pace. It's, it's the, not just the automaticity and the instantaneity of what we're surrounded by. Um, but it's, you know, it's the, what, what we're lacking when we're only surviving on a steady diet of that kind of click. And, and there are studies now that show that just a short bit of Googling actually not only gives people a kind of cognitive hubris, they think they know more than they do, but I think really importantly, they're less willing to struggle with a problem later. Uh, so there's this idea that it comes easily. And, and that's not to say that attention is something that is rocket science and for astrophysicists and uh, something that, you know, your child can't learn because it's so monstrous. I mean, I used to write about work-life balance and sometimes people felt as though that concept was uh, the mountain, the Everest. You know, we need work-life balance when really <laughs> it's a matter of small steps and understanding what it is we want and treasure and value. And particularly with attention, of course, understanding what is the cognition? Um, and maybe I'll take a minute right now to introduce people um, to the three types of attention. Yes, lovely. You you actually kicked uh, kickstarted uh, and and saved me a question. So yes, please tell us a little bit about the the set set the stage for defining attention and the parts of attention, which often. Um, and if I may interject one quick thought, as you were saying. You know, I did neuroanatomy as my first year as an undergraduate speech pathology um, student. And we, when I saw the map of the brain, um, 
uh, it showed motor mapping, which is the the area in the brain that's consumed by or the allocation of resources to the uh, in the area of the brain. And you won't believe it. The the I don't know if you remember those old sketches where the hand and yes. the mouth is taken up a lot of space. Yes. And because I'm a speech pathologist, there was such overemphasis on uh, motor planning, which is execution or production, which is the motor system needs to be mapped out. Not a single image was ever shown regarding how, what kind of systems brain occupies when we talk about attention, because it's all pervasive. And it just made me think that we didn't even know to ask that question. It was right. not even top of the mind for people. They right. assume no. attention will be there. It was only <laughs> a decade or so ago that scientists began to decode how we could study attention. What it really, it, it has been one of the world's greatest mental mysteries. What is attention? And it, you're right. It's because people were thinking about the brain in modular terms. The vision is here. The language is there. That is true. But now the foremost, um, you know, understanding of the brain leads us to understand about its connectionist orientation, that, that it is a network, but not in the computer sense, in the <laughs> sense of an organic, living, pulsing, changeable kind of uh, entity. Um, and I think that's really important. So that's, but, it, but having said that, attention is in some ways simple to understand. And it, it, this will ring a bell, I think, for people who haven't thought about it precisely before. There are now considered three types of attention. The first is focus. Of course, that is what the first type of detention to develop in babies. And scientifically, it's called orienting. They need to orient to a caregiver or to a danger in their environment. It's, it's considered or, or the uh, uh, metaphor that even scientists use is the spotlight or the flashlight of the mind. And that's really an important, and that's why people talk about focus as if it is attention. But at the same time, um, you know, there is the second type of attention, which is awareness called alerting. So in other words, I can be focusing on you right now, but I can be half asleep, you know, as you are sometimes in a lecture. And so alerting and, and uh, orienting go hand in hand, and, and, but they're not the same thing. And finally, there is the, you know, executive attention. And that is the sort of uh, part of the executive mind that allows us to have uh, to pursue a certain object. We want to pay attention to this, not that. There's a decision-making process that's you know akin to the symphony conductor. So very close ties with the prefrontal cortex. And so these three types of attention work together, and yet they are separate. And I think that that rings a bill to people. You know that what what attention is, and and all of those are really important. Very very important. You know, so I have to tell you, uh, when 10 years ago, when your book came out, I was bowled over because here we are in the field of neuroscience and actual a clinician who's working with patients. And, and I said, oh, my God, this journalist is able to capture and describe and really intimate people or warn them. If you don't take this seriously, it's going to be a problem. And, and I felt that the even the neuroscientists themselves were not speaking that way. You know, they were just compartmentalizing their own work. They were saying, you're on your own, you figure it out. Uh, and and you were the probably the first one. You know, I remember Daniel Pink, uh, you know, um, Thomas uh, Friedman coming and talking about 21st century skills, uh, mm -hmm. you know, at the turn of century that there was a huge huge discussion about this 21st century is going to be a technology century. Do we have enough skills? And people, then your book came and you actually woke people up from the slumber that don't think about technology, think about your skills. So it's not mm -hmm. the go and get those skills. No, no, these skills. <laughs> Can you talk to that? And I have one more question about this. You know, James, um, um, William James, rather, in 1890, uh, I mean, 1890, wrote this, uh, the faculty of voluntarily bringing back our wandering attention over and over is the root of judgment, character, and will. Do you think that still holds true? Yes, absolutely. And of course, he was so ahead of his time. And, and yet the fact that he was discussing attention in his brilliance shows in some ways that it's, it is a issue for human humanity, you know, forever, you know, probably uh, all 
periods of time have tangled to some extent, although we now have the science. And I think, um, yes, you touched on a really important point, which is these skills that I'm talking about are vehicles. They are, uh, you know, what trans allows the mind to be in the position to think, to make judgments. I mean, this idea of having focus uh, is um, really related to a number of concepts. It's related to the executive function concept of working memory. You know, the memory that you are able to have to, for different data so that you can have that in uh, at hand to use, you know, for information processing. Well, that's really related to focus, which is the boundary making, the flashlight around that, what, what you want to pay attention to. It's also related, I might say, in consciousness studies uh, that, you know, there's a concept called the global workspace. And that is, you know, that pertains to the fact that only when you're consciously focusing on something, can you then can the human mind reason or, you know, think about it at the next level and the next level and next to build a chain of thought. So you can see how these concepts all work. And I, I think, I feel like attention is a way we grasp something and sort of gently hold it in front of us. You know, we are alert to its details and its manifestations. We are focusing on it. So this is what's important, not this and that and that and this and that. And, and finally, we are making that, you know, that that sets the stage for the kind of judgment. And it's really important to understand that when, for instance, I think one of the primary characteristics of today's technology is that is it, it fragments us, whether we are preyed upon by these, you know, very clever gadgets and the type of algorithms they subject us to, or whether we're just tempted and allured, you know, it's a mix, uh, we are very much um, splintering, multitasking, layering the moment, time splicing, and losing the integrity of the moment. And I think that the, you know, now studies are showing the long-term costs of that kind of behavior on the attention, which can lead us to think. So you can begin to see heavy multitaskers are not just distracted, but they also remember things less. Uh, all, all of what's they can in front do of deep them. work. Yeah, exactly. They're cutting short the opportunities to focus and pay attention and then to follow that with the kind of reflective judgment, um, which we can also talk further about. So it's really important to tie these things together so that we then see the, the this this really it's sort of an epic chance that the human has. It's 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 quantum. It's, it's vast. It's, it's everything we've evolved toward is this moment of attention. And so that we can reflect in that, you know, in that kind of e executive function and use the skills of executive function to do it well. You know, as you were speaking about its inter interconnectivity to technology, uh, this pre-technology. So uh, again, going back to my field, uh, when we worked with patients with concussions and brain injuries and any neurological alterations or developmental disorders that affect the attentional system, memory system, and an executive function system, we often talked about uh, attention and the, the opposite side of that coin being distractions. And we talked about distractions at internal distractions and external distractions. And then the external distractions, we categorize them. So when we did the metacognitive training, you would talk about visual distractions, auditory distractions, and olfactory distractions and sensory distractions. And then internally, you talk about you, you know, your physical need, mental distractions and psychological distractions. And so when you create a treatment plan, you're teaching people this self-regulatory process of how to regulate all aspects of this distractibility. And I cannot tell you when technology, I think 2011, as you know, a lot of work talks about when the handheld technology, when the iPhones or phones became ubiquitous to every person's existence, I felt people suddenly developed neurological dysfunction. Like mm -hmm. I felt very 
competent people were behaving like the most incompetent patients that I had seen who have the bandwidth or actually wisdom to seek help. And now everybody's walking around with impairment in a way. So I know, exactly. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the, the way in your work, you titled your book also Distracted. Why did you not title it Attention versus Distracted? And what what is the most surprising or the, and you warn us about uh, if we don't get a handle on it, this can be like a decline of humanity. So speak a little bit about that global impact as well as the everyday impact of distractions. Sure. Yes, yes. Well, I, as I mentioned a minute ago, the studies are now beginning to be um, made. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, people weren't really studying memory. They weren't studying multitasking. So now we're beginning to understand not just how fragment, how, how lost the moment is when you're distracted, but how, what are the long-term costs of living in that, that kind of lifestyle? And that's really important. So yes, people are running around with memory impairments. I mean, just the other, there are, you know, scientists who are really seriously considering a um, rise in Alzheimer's because of memory problems caused by uh, technology. Because when you constantly, constantly undercut the mind's ability to encode memory, uh, to, you know, do the kind of repetitive work necessary to deeply uh, and, and embed memory into through, you know, through the hippocampus into our brains, you know, you're cutting, uh, you're cutting out the ability of the mind to add to these wonderful associational networks of knowledge. They're almost like our mind and our knowledge is like a tree of life. It's constantly sending out branches and connecting and everything is moving all the time. And so when you're constantly looking up something, you know, you're, 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 you're Googling something, you're giving up the chance to uh, go within and to traverse the uh, um, networks, associations of knowledge that you have, and, and in doing so, strengthen them. So just for instance, it's really important to understand that, you know, you know, for instance, when we're using technology, when we're offloading our memory, for instance, to technology, we're depending on it for GPS, or we're depending on to look up little facts and things like that. We're not actually, then we're losing the chance to go into what are the knowledge stores, the knowledge networks, which are kind of like, you know, our knowledge is like a tree of life. It's basically uh, connected and there are associations and it's always changing. And so my association between the words gold and ship will be different than yours. And creative people have much more uh, ability to vibrant. So the you know vastness of their memory. So we're cutting short that um, that those that 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 strengthening of the memory networks um, that we can you know when that we can have when we just reach for the device to do it for us. And even something as uh, something as seemingly you know benign or frustrating as forgetting something. If you are searching for a word or the name of a painter and you don't Google it and you look in memory for who did that painting and what was Picasso's period called and you don't find it, you're still strengthening your mind. That's why scientists say forgetting is a friend to learning because you know you are still actually navigating and 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 utilizing the brain in ways that we're not when we're depending upon these machines. So it's undercutting our attention. It's decimating our memory and therefore our stores of wisdom. I've had professors tell me that basically if um, a student is taking Psych 101, multitasking their way through the lectures, you know, kind of Googling and doing this, et cetera, uh, they might be able to cram for the test and get a good grade. But by the time they come back in the spring, the professors told me it's as if they did not take Psych 101 because oh the memory that they have is so ephemeral and so elusive that and you can think of a surgeon, perhaps, who's in medical school, who's doing that same thing, asking their way through the lesson. Well, they come to a problem. The patient is bleeding in the operating room. They might be able to then do something, the mo- take the most common solution, but they also won't be able to reach in, make new connections into, in their knowledge because 
their knowledge stores are sort of depleted and, and they won't be able to be inventive in the operating. So we're, we're losing wisdom and we're losing invention as, as a result of this downloadable society. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to pause for a second for myself because this takes me to so many places. Uh, I've had a learning sci a scientist who studied learning and memory uh, and uh, Daniel Willingham, uh, for example. And uh, he too was talking about this idea of learning. If you think about new learning requires you to analyze and synthesize information. Mm -hmm. And part of that encoding process in memory is to see info new incoming information, put take it apart and see connections with prior knowledge. And a lot of students are struggling to activate prior knowledge because one, they think in compartments. And as you said, they're looking for answers rather than forming a big picture. Exactly. That gestalt is a very important cognitive skill that good learning can lend itself to. And, and that is one big loss that I see um, that when I work with students, particularly I, I specialize in middle school, high school, and college. And one of the struggles they have is they look at exam as an obstacle in them, them completing the grade, mm -hmm. <laughs> not as an opportunity to grow their mind. And I'm not being critical of them. I'm just thinking, they're thinking, uh, my, my schoolwork is coming in the way of my life. And my what is my life is, and, and so I always take interviews of students and say, show me what has entertained you this week. And I kid you not, Yesterday I had a session and one of the, I've never seen this before, but one of the kids, um, he, he's in college, first year college at Georgia Tech, and he showed me a video. And the video was um, these tribal people tasting Western food. Oh. Okay. Very interesting. Zero value to life, but absolutely, utterly entertaining. And then we just turned around to his history, introductory history he's taking, and he has no interest in it. So I was just saying, you, you looked at tribalism. Do you have any commentary to make from a perspective of history? And he said, oh, I never thought about that way. You know, so, so here is a formal learning and informal interest in something that he's doing for fun. And that disconnect is what I'm seeing. So that to me is a real danger to culture as you talk about. So right. what, tell me, why, do, why are you so concerned about if this continues and why did even Google wake up and take notice of your, um, you know, the sounding of alarm? What is the ramification if nothing changes? Yes. Yeah. No, I was really heartened that Google uh, executives told me that my book was an inspiration for their recent huge initiative on digital well-being. I was shocked, really shocked. Um, so um, thank you for mentioning that. Um, well, I, I think that the ramifications are ones we can already see around us. Um, you know, for instance, just for an example, you know, uh, consider the polarization, the divisiveness in our country and in the world. And, you know, a prejudice and it is, is usually built on stereotyped categorizations that people make automatically and quickly. Uh, so the mind goes back to its, you know, sort of primitive roots of making instant decisions based on the kind of heuristics or shortcuts. They're not like us, so they're an enemy and, and that kind of thing. We do that all the time. We do that every day and we can't in, in many ways help that. But at the same time, uh, you know, when we're skipping from fact to fact and from thing to thing, I mean, only 24% of, um, you know, posts online are actually read. 75% um, are shared or retweeted, etc., just based on the headline. And that is a kind of cursory judgment. Of course, it feeds, you know, the pace of life. It allows us to multitask. It allows us to skip from thing to thing, etc. All the value systems that we adore. And yet at the same time, what does that do? We're making cursory judgments all the time about one another. We're misunderstanding. I was at a digital conference big, you know, big New York digital conference a few years ago. And these were people from the advertising industry, 
uh, they were in charge for very, very big, big companies for the, the media, uh, digital media budgets, et cetera. Well, it was so interesting because I was giving a talk on distraction and attention and there were screens everywhere and I could see the Twitter thread. And later I asked for the organizers to send me the Twitter thread of the audience and I examined it closely. And it was so interesting. The people who were had the most enthusiasm who were tweeting the most, who were, you know, very, very interested in the topic were the ones who had misunderstood what I had said again and again. They got the facts wrong. They weren't getting what I was trying to say. They were twisting it and not consciously at all. They were, you know, loving the talk and completely getting it wrong because they were trying to tweet at the same time. And I thought, bingo. I mean, that just shows in real life. We can't, what I I always say to people is that, knowing doesn't happen at a glance. You know, we can, in, we can go through our routines, we can, you know, look at what we've looked at before, we can do the same old commute, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, that's instant and automatic and heuristic, as I mentioned, but knowing, knowledge, wisdom, all of what makes for humanity's greatest achievements cannot happen at a glance. And that is what we're doing when we're, uh, you know, sort of undercutting our attention in these ways is assuming that wisdom is instantaneous. And so the repercussions are enormous for uh, tribalism or polarization for the, you know, the problems of climate change are messy, interconnected, difficult, um, just because we this planet has an emergency, we are truly in crisis, doesn't mean that we need quick fixes. We won't get anywhere with that. And so, and then, you know, the fate of democracy, the human rights, I see all of these as issues that are uh, balanced very precariously upon the whether or not we can, you know, finally reclaim our attentional capacities and and cultivate these skills, talk about it to our children, talk about it at work, put attention front and center. It's, 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 it's our very survival that's at stake as humans. And, and, and of course, as you mentioned a minute ago, it's very much who we are as humans. So that's what I've devoted the last 20 years to trying to understand what makes us human, you know, vis-a-vis, the robot, and this is, a, you know, incredibly in, in, in increasingly important that, you know, what the human can do versus the robot or the algorithm, et cetera. And, you know, it, it, it's what we need to focus on creating the skills that we, we need through attention and reflection in order to understand what kind of robot we want and what, what are our strengths, what are its strengths, and then, uh, and so, and, and retain, you know, our flexible, you know, constantly calibrated control of our technology. You know, so you just summed up your beautiful quote, which is, we are on the verge of losing our capacity as a society for deep, sustained focus. In short, we are slipping towards a new dark age. And I hope we, we wake up and somebody, or this book, in talks like yours, wake people up to the reality that the the reflection is essential element of being a, uh, you know, our shifting from our lizard brain to wizard brain is through reflection. So it is actually, we propelled our uh, prefrontal system to, uh, you know, grow and develop. And that's why we have culture and, and we have this incredible capacity for compassion. And then we are regressing with slight interception of technology. So tell me the last piece that I, I, I want to talk about is role of creativity. Uh, and, and as you know, the default mode network the, uh, during which we, we are hanging back, uh, let loose, it's like, um, you know, letting, letting uh, connections make their connections or no supervisory system inter- intercepting or kind of uh, interfering with, with the way we make connections of ideas that were free floating. Can that be damaged because of this uh, highly distractible inter, um, uh, kind of interlude of technology with our, our daily lives? Yes, no, that's a fantastic question. And some scientists are beginning to think that's exactly what might happen because when we are constantly exterior focused, when we're constantly, of course, Googling that fact or focusing on something else, 
we don't have, uh, we're not allowing the default mode network, which is one another one of those systems of the brain, um, to actually um, do its work. And so we're constantly, again, cutting short the opportunity for um, the skills that the default mode gives us, such as self-awareness and self-reflection. And then, you know, I love the idea that the default mode is at the root of reverie or daydream. I love that. Yes. And it, it's, it's not that the default mode represents the drifting mind. And of course, our mind is so capable of drifting. But at the same time, the default mode is um, at the core of the sort of associational streams of thought that aren't as tightly controlled, tightly goal oriented. So the executive network actually does um, is has been seen in play with the default mode all the time. That was a surprise to many scientists, but that's because if you think about a daydream, which by the way, are very uh, therapeutic, consoling, and future-oriented. I'm thinking about what the party will be like. I'm a little nervous about it. I'm thinking about what the meeting tomorrow with my boss. It's a sort of mental rehearsal. It's not usually, uh, you know, a complete free-for-all. You know, you're usually not just jumping from thing to thing. A daydream is a cohesive thing. It's just that it's a little more, you know, floaty and, and drifting. And, and that's a very, very, very important part of our mind. And that's something that, you know, again, we can undercut by distracting ourselves. Distraction, by the way, usually means to be pulled to something secondary in modern lingo. We think of it as I was distracted by my baby crying in the next room when I was trying to write this memo. Uh, but distraction, a few hundred years ago, literally in Shakespeare's time, uh, one of the original meanings meant to be fragmented, to be pulled in pieces. So there's a great quote from Shakespeare's play Caesar to say Caesar's troops were distracted on the battlefield. They were scattered, basically. Scattered. And that's in a really important I think modern concept of distraction, the scattering, the fragmentation. I think we need to kind of hold on to that. Um, you know, that doesn't mean so distraction as fragmentation, as being pulled away to what you had been doing, doesn't mean that you don't want to daydream. You know, a daydream might distract you by some definition, it might intrude on your thought. And yet it might be something that your mind is trying to process that you might need to spend time on, it even might be a, a way to loosen up your thinking on the creative problem in front of you. So I think it's really important with attention. And I think with matters of the mind to stay away from tight definitions. Um, you know, focus isn't like a laser beam. No, it's sort of like a, a beautiful spotlight that swivels and roams and, you know, and, 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 and expands and contracts. And, and the default mode is not, you know, not something that's a kind of distraction that, you know, distraction and, and attention are not, you know, too, a good and evil kind of, you know, system. We have to, we have to think. We need about both of them. Exactly. We, we need all of these different types of thinking, but the important part is we need to marry the depth of thinking with the kind of the breadth and we need to, we need to recultivate our skill in choosing among these types of thinking uh, through attention love and that. through reflection. I love that. Uh, when I explain to my patients, the way I say it is, is think about a uh, floodlight, like, you know, when you have a chopper and you run away. So there's like a huge concentrated attention. So that's executive attention, giving a defined boundary to large area, but specific, but then you have the flashlight, but the flashlight pointed inwards is that self-awareness. And mm -hmm. then the last is the moonlight. The moonlight is when you take a stroll, that's your default mode network where you have this un like a, a, a good, amount of guidance, but no defined outlines. And, mm -hmm. and but you 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 have this ambience, uh, um, there's a feeling of warmth, where you are wandering peacefully. And, and, you, you know, as, as you know, the research actually suggests that after doing some intense learning, you got to allow the brain to just 
veg out because only then that solidification consolidation of memory can really happen. And to me, most people, particularly students I'm talking about, they take that time to do something very intense like Instagram. Exactly. And which is completely lost on them. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yes. Even people with Alzheimer's have been shown to improve their memory if they're allowed to just do nothing between learning tasks. So people with Alzheimer's usually don't learn, obviously, (laughs) and their memory. But, um, you know, it it just shows you that, that we need, you know, again, it speaks to the diversity of thinking that we need. We need the slower pace and we need pausing and we need, you know, intense kinds of thinking and we need uh, chains and trails of thought and then as well to step off those pathways. So it's it's very important to understand that all of this is important for the mind. So, so that brings us to the last question. Uh, I want you to live us with a sense of hope and yeah. uh, there are a lot of things we can do and you mentioned a few of them, what are some of the most important and uh, essential steps we can take to manage our inherent nature of technology-inducing distractions? Uh, But And second part is, how are you dealing with uh, your life? And where have you made massive changes because what you have seen and read and researched? Yes, yeah. No, that's great. Those are two great questions. So what what can we all do? I think that, you know, we can think small, um, that just as with work-life balance or dieting or any monumental change you want to make in your life, it's very important to start small. So if we're trying to practice focus, um, you know, we have to set low expectations for ourselves. I think that, you know, a few minutes of focus is an achievement. If you're really focusing, practice these small moments. And with focus, I always say, eat dessert first. In other words, do something that you are inclined to be absorbed in and then try to extend your focus and, and, and practice your focus. And of course, meditation is a great way to do that too. So practice these fo- skills of a focus and, and uh, attention. And then there's so much we can do. And, you know, I, I think that it's really important as well to, now I was talking internally, but I think it's really important, of course, to curate our environment to think about, you know, shutting the office door or closing 16 windows on your screen, uh, you know, virtually or physically, we can make changes to our environment. I often set an alarm clock. If I'm trying to focus on something, but I know I have a four o'clock call for this podcast, well, then I'll set the alarm for quarter to four. And then my mind is free to focus on what I had been thinking about, not is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time? So we're making it easy. I mean, I always think, does the Dalai Lama uh, meditate in Times Square? Well, yes, the Dalai Lama can meditate in Times Square. But on the other hand, is it easy for him on a quiet mountainside? (laughs) Yes. So, you know, we're setting the stage. It's kind of like you don't go jogging in your high heels. You put on the jogging shoes and you, (laughs) you, you create the conditions to then practice the focus, but, but focus and attention and thinking don't come automatically. We need to have that kind of practice. And what have I done? Well, I guess I'm just a lot more aware um, of, yes, curating the environment. I'm a lot more aware of um, how, I mean, there, there, there are times when I'm focusing really intensively on a very, very difficult chapter. I'm writing a new book and, um, you know, tangling with and wrestling with the overarching theme of the chapter and what am I trying to say? And then there are other times when I'm surfing around and, and, you know, my mind and my computer are kind of hyperlinking and that's okay. You know, I draw on these, these are kind of arrows in our quiver that we can use explicitly and understand, you know, what it takes and what, what, you know, what skills we what skills we can draw upon in our lives and it's wonderful that there are these different types of attention and that they can deliver us to the moment of reflection or good deep listening or on self-understanding and even just uh, the skills of attention that we have can allow us to be there for the great daydream i love that and so much humility i think your own journey has taught you so much and you have leaned into it and said, 
I surrender. <laughs> I am going to accept uh, the limitations that can be, you know, triplicated if I don't kind of make changes in myself. Um, I'll, you know, two weeks ago, I did a, a one week of sil silence, noble silence, uh, as part of my mindfulness practice. Uh, and last week, which is now two weeks, I did uh, a digital detox. So only kept two hour windows during which I connected to the internet. Um, and, and, and now um, I have once a month, uh, a day of silence. Uh, that's one thing that I'm practicing to really kind of allow this introspection to happen. Uh, mm -hmm. But you are absolutely right. I think if there is no deliberate effort, it is not going to happen. Yes. But that wouldn't come unless you have the wisdom or humility to accept that the world is much stronger than your mind is, unless you make your mind stronger. <laughs> and I'll, I'd just like to add one more uh, very important detail for all of us, I think, to move forward. And that is to speak up. I, I now speak up about attention. For instance, I won't do an interview for my research with a scientist or for my journalism uh, while someone is driving. No matter what the circumstance, they could be a Nobel Prize winning scientist. I've had to I've had to say no, and, <laughs> and I can tell in a person's voice when they call me, in me, it's not the sound of the telephone call, it's the way they sound, and I say, well, are you driving? And Or they'll say, well, can, I can set it up at this hour because I'll be driving, and I say, I'm sorry, I have a hard and fast, I had to actually say I no to that. my children's pediatrician once, it wasn't for an emergency, but I won't talk to someone, not only do they sound off and not very intelligent. They're not doing their best for an interview. But secondly, and I won't talk to friends because it's not a great conversation, but also um, I don't want to be culpable. So I think we need to be attentional activists. Wow, and I, I, I actually try to gently call out situations when I think people are undercutting one, you know, I'm not trying to be the cop, but I, I say, we'll say to people, well, maybe this isn't a good, or to my husband, you know, he'll be listening to, you know, why my, my newest problem with the book or something. And, and he's multitasking through something. And I'll say, well, this isn't a moment, a good moment. Let's wait till after dinner, you know, till you're finished cooking. And I think that, you know, we can be able to um, tinker uh, again, like work like that tinker. We don't have to go the mile all the time tinker and work with each other, but speak up for attention. Let's be activists for attention because it is so important and we'll all benefit. Well, I am going to take this to heart. You know, one thing you just pointed out, I have not been an activist. I have been an advocate, a, a, a lukewarm advocate. I'm a fierce uh, therapist, but <laughs> I've not gone into the social realm on calling people out. But I will tell you, I have done that with my husband and my my children uh, that I'll be saying, and they look up, I just stop. Uh, and they said, no, you can continue. And I said, I, I always say, uh, no, sounds like you have something important to address. I can wait. And that has done the, put, no, 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 speak up. Tell me what you're thinking. So Maggie, as we end our conversation, would you mind sharing uh, one or two uh, of your favorite books that you think uh, our listeners will find uh, valuable in their journey to make themselves better? Sure. Well, uh, it's interesting. The first thing that comes to mind, although I mostly read nonfiction and I mostly read for my work, um, is the novel Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. And, you know, really? while some might say that's so passe or that is so, you know, long ago, um, today we're just finding again and again and again, you know, what an incredible forward thinker Jane Austen was politically, feminist, etc. You know, her uh, elevation of comedy, her, mo you know, the way she speaks to the modern day. But what I love uh, about that book uh, particularly is because it shows so clearly how blind we are to others' perspectives. And, and by that, we can say how blind we are to uh, other ideas of the world or other uh, perspectives just on the moment. And so, you know, it's really a story about two people who woefully mis misunderstood one another 
but that's the human condition. And I think that's, uh, that has so many different lessons for attention and reflection and for thinking and, and for oh, humanity's mind. You know, it's so funny you said that two weeks ago. Uh, before my silent retreat began, I watched Jane Austen's that same movie, uh, a movie by Kira Knightley. And the reason I watched that, because there's a neuroscientist from Stanford who studies gossip. And he said, oh. one of the most important, um, uh, you know, piece of literature and a movie you should watch and read and study is Jane Austen, because she understood how people fail to theorize the minds of others. And here you are mentioning that. That's so cool. Well, the other book I would come to mind, and I, I mean, these are a little bit random in some ways, but um, I guess they, you know, indicate something of um, either long-term interests of mine or, but a book that I've returned to again and again is a very slim volume called The Rosetta Stone. It's a nonfiction book. It's part of a series about the ancient world. I think it's, um, the series is edited by Mary Beard. It's uh, the book is by a professor at Cambridge University of Cambridge called John Ray, who's an Egyptology specialist. But this book, uh, again, shows multiple different perspectives. It's talking about the, the how languages are born, uh, you know, the great uh, cultural competition between different nations for you know, who would preserve or steal uh, others' cultures. Uh, it talked about, uh, you know, what wow. all the different um, cultures in Egypt at the time of the creation of the Rosetta Stone, which was basically like a public announcement of a pharaoh's wishes, um, <laughs> and, ha- they, you know, how different cultures uh, lived side by side in that age. So this book tells so many different stories, and so beautifully, I've read it, four or five times and I recommend it to everyone. It's just a lovely glimpse of the past, but yet it does give us so many perspectives on important aspects of the world. So I love that kind of, and it's about code breaking. Where could you go wrong? (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. This is going to be on my list. I have not read that book, so I'm going to make it an immediate urgent goal for myself. And uh, Maggie, I cannot thank you for your time, your wisdom, and incredibly fun, engaging conversation. And and thank you, everybody who tuned in today. If you love what you hear, please recommend our podcast to everybody you know and like us on social media. I'm probably not doing a great job of kind of plugging thing my this podcast, but uh, please, you take the ball and roll with it. And once again, thank you for being with us today and uh, have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.